Well, good morning once again. Um, I'm changing things up a little bit in comparison to what the bulletin says as far as a message. There are kind of a couple of reasons for that. One is I didn't expect very many people here this morning. I thank you guys for coming. But I figured with the roads, we would definitely be down on numbers, um, although it looks much better than last week. Um, I am thankful that we have chosen not to cancel because we've had visitors each week. Um, so that's been a great praise. Um, but because of that, I thought I would delay my last Christmas message until next week. Um, and instead, I wanted more time to even think through that and bring you something that's more of my unrefined thoughts, I guess, <coughs> of things that I'm often thinking through. Um, and I hope in, in doing this and going through this text, it will also define for us an agenda, not just for our church, but set forth a vision for the church as a whole, meaning the global Christian church. Um, so with that said, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled Ordinary, the Radical Call of Faith. As you go to Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 12, we'll read the first nine verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. <clears throat> Verse 8, From there he moved to the hill country to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, and Bethel on the west and I to the, on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on still toward the Negev. You may be seated. Among the most noted people in United States history, never does the name Lord Timothy Dexter ever enter into our conversations. In fact, very few people remember the great contributions that Lord Timothy Dexter ever gave us, probably because he didn't give us any great contributions. Samuel Knapp describes Timothy Dexter in this way. There are but few men who are sufficiently attentive to their own thoughts and able to analyze every motive or action, meaning people think about themselves and know themselves. Then he goes on and says, among these, Timothy Dexter was not one. Dexter was born outside of Boston in 1748, and he fancied himself a great man. Eventually, he would pen these words about himself. I am the first in the East, the first in the West, and the greatest philosopher in the Western world. 
although he never contributed anything to philosophy. He would become a leather craftsman, and during that time, he was fortunate enough to meet a widow, a widow by the name of Elizabeth Fordingham. She was a wealthy widow, and Dexter probably was more enamored with her money than her looks or her character. But this new position of wealth that he got by marrying her never brought him the respect that he thought he deserved. So he sought appointment to a political office. And so frustrated with him, the local officials finally did indeed appoint him to an office. They called him the informer of deer, in which he would count the deer population. If that wasn't silly enough, there hadn't been a deer in the area in over 20 years. <laughs> Still, he never received the respect. And Dexter sought to increase his wealth, hoping that money would garner more respect. And so when soldiers returned from the Revolutionary War, he bought what they would have at that time, the Continental Dollars. At this time, they had become worthless, and he had watched his neighbors do the same. His neighbors did it to help those who had these worthless Continental Dollars and were struggling, and to just give a little bit of confidence in that money. And so Dexter spent his entire savings on this. It was a move that most people would probably describe as stupid. They were worthless, they were taken out of circulation, and they probably would never become valuable again. And then in 1790, under Alexander Hamilton, the United States did something different. They could trade these treasury for treasury bonds worth 1% of their face value. Dexter hid instantaneous wealth. He increased his wealth. That seems to be the story of his life. Since he was still unaccepted, he finally moved to a neighboring town in Massachusetts. And there he built a massive estate. He purchased a fleet of ships. His neighbors so disliked him, they started giving him business advice to bankrupt him. One neighbor told him to sell warming pans in the West Indies. These pans were used to warm the beds of people. And if you know anything about West Indies, it's hot. They don't need warming pans. He bought 42000 when they wouldn't sell, he marked up the price by another 79% and sold them as ladles to the sugar factories. Another told him to go sell coal in a nearby town. There was already a coal plant there. But when Dexter showed up, that plant was on strike. So again, he marked up the price of his coal and made another handsome profit. This would only make him hated more. At the end of his life, Dexter had amassed a huge fortune financially, unmatched by a lot of people in his time. But when he died, he died alone. His estate was auctioned off. The statues that he used to decorate his estate that cost $2,000 a piece were sold for a mere 50 cents. He was intentionally buried in a quaint little cemetery outside of town where leaders wanted him placed so that they would never have to think about him again after he died. At this point, if he's remembered at all, it is done so with distaste and spite, or worse, a sermon illustration. <laughs> the reality is that Timothy Dexter was simply seeking what we now call the American dream. While those in his day would describe him as stupid and selfish and sinful, Today, many would describe him as positive and profitable and persistent. 
the only noble dreams in American, of American dreams at this point are those that seek out personal wealth and glory. They are dreams that will increase the material wealth and drive us to independence from one another. We teach our kids they can be anything as they want, and so they must dream big in this way. It's great sadness to see this attitude infiltrate the church. We should never be amazed when the world acts like the world, but we should be surprised when the church acts like the world and be concerned. The current church in the United States looks more like a pursuit of the American dream than it does a pursuit of a holy God. It's no surprise then that so many people are turning from the church and more importantly, turning from God. It has nothing to peddle except the same visions of riches and wealth pandered by the rest of the world. It's not uncommon to hear the statistics of how many people are falling away from the faith. And often those results are staggering. And yet if we examine the gospel message being proclaimed, being shared, the results really shouldn't surprise us. The message we share is often one of self-centeredness. Come to Christ and your life will be happier. This morning, I looked at li online at some of the bigger, more known churches in our area, and you come across things like believe in yourself. No, believe in God. Another one says God wants you as you are. No, God wants you to be like his son, Jesus Christ. And the last one says we want you to feel comfortable. I might even allow a little bit of a pass on that one because we do want people to be comfortable but more than that, we want them to be confronted with the reality of who Christ is. We're not looking to make it awkward, but we want to present Christ. The focus in this proclamation is not on God, but on us. It proclaims that God will give us what we want, meaning that we just simply tell God what we want. We pray to him and say, Lord, I want this, and he is then obligated to give it to us. But that's not God at all. If God simply responds to what we say he should do, he's not God, we are. And ultimately what happens is that we recognize that when God would do whatever we want, we really don't need God anymore. We just put him off to the side because that's not faith in God, it's faith in self that we proclaim. And that kind of faith is not sustainable. It is no wonder that so many people would indeed walk away from faith in Christ. And so instead, we must proclaim a message that teaches faith that will last and endure, both in the difficult times and in the wonderful times. What has happened is that the church has created a false portrayal of both God and faith. But instead, we're tasked with creating a view of God and faith to the world that is both truthful and real. As part of our daily life, our daily task is to illuminate a God who is not distorted, but is real. We're tasked to illustrate a God who is not deficient, but is relevant. And indicate a God who is not deceptive, but is reliable. Impart a God who is not distant, but is reachable. And interpret for people a God who is not demanding, but is righteous. It is our goal to leave behind us then a committed disciples who are imbued with understanding so that they may continue to adequately defend against any type of assault against the Christian faith. It must be our burden then to inculcate into the next generation 
a definable faith that is stable, sensible, and sustainable. For that, I turn to today's text, Genesis chapter 12, and we see this example of Abraham, the most prominent of human illustration, at least, of what it means to have faith. It is in chapter 12 that we are first introduced to Abraham. Of course, he's known as Abram here, as we just read. Genesis 27 describes Abram as a prophet and a friend of God. In chapter 18, verses 17 through 19, he is described as a man in God's confidence, and later on as a prince of God. The psalmist declares Abraham to be a servant of God. As a human, he, of course, was not without sin. But by his obedience, Abraham, or Abram, repeatedly demonstrated himself to be a man of God's choosing. And if there's anyone for us to look at as a role model of the Christian life, it is him. And so as we look at the text this morning, I want you to note first the radical call of verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In an introduction to the man, Abram, we see this divine call on his life. And any divine call is going to be a radical call. It is extraordinary both in nature and in substance. In its nature, first off, it is a calling from the one true God. Everything that exists, exists with the purposes or for the purposes of God alone. It is he who began a good work, and therefore it is he who will complete that work. And it is he alone that orders everything that happens according to its ultimate ending. A godly calling from God himself can be nothing less than extraordinary and radical. And that's what we see in our text. <clears throat> in substance, substance, though, the calling of God also stands opposed to human reason. This makes it extraordinary because the calling of God calls on a person to put aside everything that they have ever known. It is a calling that asks people to set aside their comforts, the security of people close to them, the security of a steady job, the security of a life where everything is already planned out. The calling of God is radical because it calls us to set aside, set aside the things that we know to be and instead replace them with things we hope to be. It is this radical call that defines the text here as God calls upon Abram. Abram is a man whose legacy is one of faith. We see that in Hebrews chapter 11. Throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, he is frequently described as a friend of God. This indeed was a great man. He was so great that while the previous 11 chapters of Genesis cover 2,000 years of history, the next 14, chapter 12 through 26, cover Abram in his lifetime. And at this pivotal point in the Bible, God's divine plan, God's divine calling for all people begins to unfold before our very eyes. It's not just Abram that we see represented here. We see God start to orchestrate his plan. 
in a way that only God could do. God calls Abram to a new life. It is a life that will be defined by faith, that will forsake all worldly pleasures in order to gain godly piety. And the Lord calls on Abram to give up no less than four things in his life. The first is a call to leave his country. He was originally called out of Ur, which was near the Persian Gulf. It was a flourishing city dominated by in southern Babylonia. Most of us know it for its famous ziggurat. But the city was also quite prosperous and an important religious center. To follow God meant Abram had to leave this behind, leave behind the only existence he ever knew. And when he does finally leave, he is 75 years old. That means he's been established with the same people for nearly three quarters of a century. For most of us, that's nearing a lifetime. The only way of life that Abram knows is defined by his existence in that country. And he's now being asked to give it all up. Related to leaving that, though, he's also to give, asked to give up his culture. To leave a culture may seem odd to most of us, but it really is difficult because it means leaving behind your comforts of daily living. In your own culture, it's easy to know how to conduct yourselves. We know how people are going to act. We know what to say and what to do. But to leave behind a culture means learning all of that processes all over again. It means, something, it means sometimes looking foolish because you say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. In the modern world, it means learning how to pay bills or do banking in this new area how to interact with the people. It is indeed a very uncomfortable place to be. When Bethany and I first moved to Argentina, before we had kids, we walked into an apartment that had no refrigerator, we had no food, because we'd just arrived. And so our first night, we went out to dinner. <clears throat> and after completing our meal, we waited for the check that never came. And we waited some more, and it never came. And after a while, we finally had to ask for it. And what we learned is that in this culture, that's what you do. You have to ask for it because they won't interrupt you with the check. They want you to spend as much time as you want with those that you're there with. It's a different culture. And to adapt to a new culture is like becoming a child all over again. It means observing. It means asking questions so that a person knows how to conduct themselves. In our human mindset, this is an impossible and almost unbelievable thing for, to ask for someone. Surely it would have been much easier for Abram to minister or reach out to his own people. He already had a connection with those. Why would God send him to see strangers? And yet, it was all part of God's purposes, as most of us know. So Abram's called to leave behind his country and his culture now he's been thrown into a new environment and he's asked to also leave behind his clan, his family. The radical call says you must leave your family. Abram must deny his earthly father in order to acknowledge his heavenly father. At this time, a man's identity is wrapped up in who his father is. As a member of his father's household, that's who he was. Much like servants were identified by who their master was when they went to town, so was a son. Around town, he would have been known as son of Terah. If his father was respected, the child would be respected. 
Likewise, if the father was wealthy, it was expected that the child would probably be wealthy too. Because when the father died, everything would pass on to the child. By leaving this behind, Abram was giving up both every right he had to his father's possessions and any social status he might have had with his father. And leaving those behind, God takes it further, though. There's more that he desires to give up, and Abram must leave his security, his cover. Anything that has brought him security in life, he must now leave behind. In giving up his family and his inheritance, the land and everything associated with it, he left behind his very livelihood. Likewise, Abraham gave up the land he was entitled to from his father. Land meant everything in that society. We're connected with farmers here, and we know how important land is for farming. But even in the big cities, land was important because it identified somebody's political status and their ability to vote or have a say on things. To give up rights to land was to give up any security that anybody had. And even more, Abram had no idea where he was going to end up. And yet he forsook everything for that. He must give up his culture, his country, his clan, and his cover. He has nothing left. This is the cost of following Christ. Luke 14, 25 through 33, Jesus proclaims, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The concept of hate in that chapter, or that verse, of course, simply means loving less. That in comparison to the love that anybody has for Christ and has for God, it should appear as hate or love for anything else. The difference between people like George Mueller and D.L. Moody is that they're willing to give up everything for the sake of having a heavenly reward. But people like Lord Timothy Dexter sought their reward now. God's callings are often combined with his promises. There's nothing here that Abram gave up that God wouldn't replace later. And as you read through the story of Abraham, you see that indeed his life was taken care of. He was well provided for. But the call of faith always requires a decisive separation from the past. And it exchanges the known for the unknown. It requires the actions of God in our lives. Abram did nothing. In fact, his family really were a bunch of idol worshippers, if you go back and look at their history. There's nothing in Abram's life at this point to convey that he deserved God's blessing or God's promises. God simply picks him. It's for this reason that the call is so radical or so extraordinary. Because God took the initiative to seek Abram out, just as he takes the initiative to seek people out. Martin Luther says it this way about the call and response of the Christian life. In this respect, all the saints are like Abraham. Even if they are good and holy in appearance, they are nevertheless subject to death and damnation as long as they have no divine call and no word. But when they have been called and enlightened through the word, they believe, they give thanks to God, they leave a godly life, and they please God. Yet in such a way that even then, 
they need the forgiveness of sins. True greatness comes in God's building. This is a radical call because each of us has been called, not according to what we can or cannot do, not because there was something special in us or something good, but because it is a divine call from God who his, in his authority compels us to himself. I want you to note second, a radical compliance. Verses 4 through the first part of 7. So Abram went, as the Lord God had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah at the time. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord. <clears throat> Every calling necess- necessitates a response. And associated with every calling, there are two options. There is a choice to accept the call or reject the call. To accept it means to obey it, quite simply. And Abram's obedience is evidenced in two ways. First, it says he went. If we look at our verses in Acts chapter 7 that we read this morning, it doesn't appear that he obeyed immediately. There seems to be a great length of time between when God called him from Ur, and somehow he ended up at Haran and left from Haran. But oftentimes a step of faith stands contrary to everything we have taught, we have been taught. It stands contrary to the responsibility we think we have. As easy it is to mock Noah for building the ark, we could mock Abraham just as much for leaving behind everything he had ties to. This is why his obedience is so radical. Faith in God is supernatural, and therefore it defies our natural reasoning. Because of that, we're prone to hesitate, not wanting to act on the unknown, when the known, the certain things, are right in front of us in this very moment. The text here is emphasizing Abraham's obedience, the fact that he went. There's some points that we must look at that must be underscored in this text. First, Abraham obeyed. There was no natural migration that happened of some sort that forced him to doubt. It was his willing obedience to leave. The other thing is he went despite his advanced age and his lack of an heir, something that he needed in order for God's promises to be fulfilled. Despite not having these in front of him, he still went forward. Tucked within this passage is something important as well. It says that Abram took with him the people they had acquired. Who are these people? A lot of different study Bibles aren't really sure, and commentators aren't sure. Some will say that they're slaves that they just had with them, or people that they bought. I would tell you I generally disagree with that. Instead, I think this is talking about converts. As God is called, and there was this big delay between when he got the call and when he left, I think Abraham's telling people about that call. If I were the only one saying that, then I probably wouldn't share anything at all because I could be wrong. I don't think this is a dividing point that we, we divide over or debate about. 
but I think it's quite possible that these are converts because the word in the text is not just people. The word is souls. Abram wasn't just taking people with him. Abram was taking souls with him is what is saying. And so I think as Abram went, he was sharing his faith with others. He was already telling about this great God who had called him and bringing them with him. And again, I'm willing to admit I'm no scholar and I could be wrong, and so I'm not going to belabor that point. But I think if that's the case, it would show even more his obedience and his willingness to move forward. Because not only is he an example of faith, he's an example of obedient faith that he followed through on what he believes. And so in this way, he becomes an example of the Great Commission. The Great Commission that says, go make disciples of all nations. Here, we have the father of all nations discipling or making disciples of all nations, making him a father both physically and spiritually. But Abram not only went, he went in a way that made a continuing positive impact for the testimony of God. And I would tell you that truth, faith, is always going to inspire others to go as well. Our obedience requires us to go. It's not a commitment that we make up begrudgingly under the power of coercion. Obedience suggests to us that we must go out of love, joy, and duty. If you look at the text further in verse 6, you see that Abram comes to this oak of Morah in Shechem. The oak of Morah had certain significance here. It's a central point for much to transpire. The Oak of Moor at that time was seen as evidence of fertility. And so this became a place of idol worship. You'll see that in Hosea chapter 4. But in contrast to the idol worship by the Canaanites, we see the worship of Abram here. In the midst of this land dwell the Canaanites. And we see that. And the very land that Abram's supposed to occupy, it's already occupied, and yet God has promised it to him. And the Lord simply responds by reaffirming his promise. And what is Abram's response? He stands in the middle of the land that is to be his, and seeing others dwell there, these pagan people who exemplify no knowledge of God at all. And God reaffirms his promise. And what Abram does is build an altar. Abram not only sees the land as inhabited, but he recognizes that this will be God's fulfillment. And he responds by worshiping God. Not only did he go, he went. He's worshiping. Obedience is not only characterized by doing and by going, but also worship. God hasn't even done anything for Abram yet. His response of worship is not predicated on God having already fulfilled his promise. He's not responding to what God has already done. He's responding to who God is, that he trusts God. As a sovereign person over Abraham's life, who has established this covenant of future promises, he worships. If you've been with me on Wednesday nights, you know that I would say worship is simply a response to the activities and attributes of God in spirit and in truth. That comes from John chapter 4. And that's what you see with Abram. He's simply responding to the activities and attributes of God. According to the mindset of the world, this is a radical concept. Because to them, 
We only act in obedience when we've received something. We give thanks when we've received something. Never before, only after. But I think there's a reason that Abraham lives this way. So I want you to note third, the radical conviction. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Verse 8. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, and Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards Negev. As we already noted, Abram is a man of faith. In Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, we see that. It tells us that Abram went when he was called, and he went out by faith. Faith is a complete trust in God, or as Wayne Grudem would say, trust or dependence on God based on the fact that we take him at his word and believe what he said. And we see Abram continue on in his journey in faith. Faith is a reasonable concept because not only is God who he says he is, but he's already proven himself faithful. We see that throughout the generations, throughout the entire course of history. God's actions are always consistent with what we know his character to be. Therefore, it's reasonable to have faith in him. Trusting him should be easy. But the reality is that even we as Christians seem to exhibit behavior two types of faith. First, I would say there's this faith in the probable. Every person in the world already lives on some sort of faith. We trust others around us to fulfill their word. We go to the store, and when we purchase something, we hand over the money, first expecting we will get the product or transfer the money electronically these days. But then we also trust that it's going to work. When we meet together for coffee or show up, we expect other people are going to be there as well. We trust others because, generally speaking, they're like us. We know how they act, and we can expect that they will act the same way as we do. It's easy to trust something that's generally true. But Abram's faith is more extreme. He's not putting his trust in the probable. He's putting his trust in the phenomenal. God acts supernaturally. The realm in which he operates is far beyond our comprehension. And for that reason, we don't always want to trust it. And we don't always understand what he is doing. We think we know what is best for us. And when that doesn't happen, we get scared. We don't put our faith in the phenomenal because it's contrary to our human reasoning. And yet God, being all-knowing, knows what is best for us. This is where faith comes in. It's trusting that God is working in the most perfect way. And we know that to be the case because we have a whole book devoted to his work, to the complete story of his work. What is, what is now, and what will be. Abraham lived in this way. He lived, his life was aligned with God. He had a radical faith. He came to a land that was already lived in by the Canaanites. And what does he do? He sets up these altars. These altars begin to establish the religious centers for God. In the midst of this pagan idolaters and their region, he starts setting up altars to the one true God. Abram knew that it was not his time to dwell in the land. And he seems okay with that from what we can tell. 
because it was going to his offspring, it says, not necessarily him. But he began the work that God had initiated through him because he had faith that it would happen. What we see there is he sets up altars. As you follow that along, he's marking the promised land. As the Lord promised to make Abram's name great, Abram responded by calling on the name of the Lord in verse 8. He trusted God to complete his work, not as Abram pleased, but as God willed. It was clear that Abram had to wait. This has proven difficult for most of us, but that's faith. Faith is not something that you feel only on a spiritual high, but faith sustains a person like Abram during those long periods of waiting. It remains constant and unchanging, always fixated on the constant and unchanging Lord. So close, I want you to consider what I call the radical conduct. This was a lifestyle for Abram. Abram lived out on the other side of the promises, having faith that they indeed would be filled, fulfilled someday. For us, we live on this side of the promises, having seen many of them already fulfilled, and yet still waiting for the full culmination at Christ's return. In verse 7, the Lord reaffirms his promise to Abram and says, To your offspring I will give this land. Galatians 3.16 reads, <clears throat> Note the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. If you look at Matthew 1, 1, which we did several weeks ago, we see that Jesus Christ indeed is in the genealogy of Abraham. Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 73, tells us that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promises. Abram, then, is simply an example of what it means to live in light of the gospel, just in a different form before Christ. Unfortunately, what we've done today is we've misapplied the example of Abram. We've taken him as an example of what it means to be an extreme Christian. Abram has been built up as a supreme example of which we can never compare, but we must at least try. We see Abram as a man who was always living in the physical presence of God, and God was communicating with him directly. And so we take that to mean that we must live in the same way. We must constantly be hearing God's voice in our head, and we must be getting feelings and emotions about him. We are searching for those constant mountaintop experiences like Abram had. The problem with this view, one, is there's valleys in between those mountaintops. It always leaves us searching for something more when we do enter those valleys, always searching for the next big thing. That's what you see in so many churches these days. They're grasping for every little thing to outdo themselves and do something better to create something more thrilling and more exciting. And in this way, Abram is seen as this radical Christian. When you build up Abram as some extraordinary super-Christian, then the Christian faith becomes unattainable for all of us, for the everyday person, because we will never attain that. This is the most radical idea of all. The Christian life is meant to be lived as an everyday Christian. The call of the Christian life is to be very ordinary. 
everybody wants to be different, so perhaps the radical thing in today's world is not to be different, but to be ordinary. Look at Abram. Abram was simply called by God. Just as we're called by God today, perhaps the form is different. Abram complied with God's calling, just as we're called to do today. Every one of us is a Christian in the same way, serving the same God, obeying the same commands with the same joy and unity for the same purposes. It does not get any more ordinary than that. To live as an ordinary Christian does not mean mediocre. The Christian life is still one of excellence. The Christian life excels at one ordinary thing, to be like Christ. This requires that Jesus Christ be the object of our faith, that he be the very center of all that we do. It is Him that in him that we must find our contentment. We have faith in what he has done and therefore can be content in the circumstances that we've been placed. This is faith. This is faith in which every person can live because it recognizes the ordinary demands of an ordinary calling. This is a type of faith we should be passing on to the next generations. We shouldn't be creating for them an unattainable faith, but creating for them a real faith. It must be our burden to inculcate into the next generation a definable faith that I just said was stable, sustainable, and sensible. It requires that we too understand that what faith is. As Abram, we see a faith that is stable. His faith does not change and is not dependent upon his circumstances. It remains the same because it comes from a God who is always the same. We also see a faith that is sensible. It's not blind. It's rooted in God who has already proven himself to be true to his word. And therefore, it makes sense. It is reasonable and rational. And finally, it is sustainable. In those long periods of waiting and wanting, faith sustains us because it is both stable and sensible. The question is not, do you know what needs to be done? The question is, do you know the Lord well enough to trust what he's already doing? Let's pray.